0: I invite you to turn with me again in your copy of God's Word to the New Testament. Our text this morning, for consideration, can be found on page 814 of your Pew Bibles. Page 814, it's Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Uh, we come to an end of a section in the book of Matthew, It's it's a good time. We're going to take a break uh, in this book, and uh, we will pick back up again in chapter 10, uh, Lord willing, the first Sunday of October. So you will need to pay particular attention uh, this morning so you know where we're at in three months when we come back uh, to the book of Matthew. Uh, this really is a transition. Uh, it really is the end of a, uh, a section of narrative preparing for a second section of teaching. Uh, and so we uh, end uh, with that transition, also a transition uh, in how the work is accomplished that Jesus Uh, has come to fulfill. We'll see that uh, as we go through this morning. Short passage, the end of chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. I invite you to follow along with me in your copy of God's word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Our Lord, we do pray to you. We pray earnestly that you would send out laborers. We pray for missionaries and evangelists and pastors and elders and lay people to go forth with the gospel of grace. And as we consider our calling to be men and women of prayer, we ask that you would address us in these few minutes. That you would speak to us in the words of this familiar text. That we would see the world and the crowds as your son does. And that as you have had compassion for us, we would learn that same compassion for fellow needy sinners. Lord, speak to us in these few minutes. Your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every fall, my family uh, makes a trek uh, down south. It's a trek that many of you all make uh, down to Henderson County. Uh, You know what happens down in apple country uh, in the fall. They have the apple festivals and they have all of the apple orchards you can go uh, pick your apples from. And every year there is an argument in our car on the way down to get apples. And it goes something like this. Why don't we just buy a bag of apples? (laughs) And every year, guess who loses the argument? We're making memories, I hear. Uh, We're paying extra money to go labor for apples. You've been there. You've gone through the different uh, types of apple tree. You've picked the apples. You've dropped the apples. You've eaten the apples you haven't paid for yet. You've been through all of this. And maybe there's a grumpy member of your family tagging behind saying, we should have just bought a bag. We'd be home by now. There's something unique and something special isn't there in joining in the harvest. And coming along and sort of playing our part. There's almost something romantic to it. Uh, Spoiler alert, there's nothing romantic about picking smelly apples. <laughs> but we do it, right? We, we go along and join the harvest. There's two ways Jesus could have harvested his people for himself. He could have just done it himself, Right? What have we seen for months in chapters 8 and 9? Miracle after miracle after miracle. Nothing stands in the way of Jesus. No sickness, no storm, no uh, demonic oppression, no pharisaical leader. No one stands in Jesus' way and he doesn't need anyone's help to get what he is sent to do. And so are we to understand at the end of chapter 9 that all of a sudden, Jesus faces this big harvest, and boy, he is out of options. <laughs> he can't do this. And so he needs us. Of course not. Jesus could, proverbial, proverbially speaking, just and gotten the whole bag himself. But how does our God work in the harvest of souls, for his glory, he invited them in the harvest. And that's what I want you to see in our text this morning. Jesus leads us to join him in the harvest. That's the image of this text. That's the thrust of this text that we are brought in to the great harvest. Now that word, that idea of harvest, you know the, the image, the fields or the, the orchard or the garden, whatever it is, it's, it's ready The vegetables and the fruit and the produce is all ready to be picked. And the laborers, the harvesters, go out and they pick that which is done. And they put it in the basket and they bring it back in. And it's the the great harvest of that field. That image is used throughout the Bible in really two ways. In the Old Testament, it is predominantly used as an image of judgment. It is a final judgment in which the separation that happens in a harvest will happen by the justice and the righteousness of God. However, when we come to this text, when we come to texts like this in the New Testament, we see the flip side of the harvest of final judgment, and it is instead a harvest of salvation. What we have here in the image are men, women, and children ready... To be brought in to the kingdom of God. And Jesus leads us to join him in that glorious harvest. And I want to show you in this text the three steps that Jesus leads us on to join him in the harvest. The first step is that Jesus plants the seeds. Before there's a harvest, the seeds have to be planted, right? So that the plants will grow. Verse 35, Jesus plants the seeds. Look with me again at verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. This reads sort of like a summary, right? We've just seen a number of diseases and afflictions healed. We have seen Jesus in homes, around the table, in fields, on mountains teaching and proclaiming. And so Matthew gives us this verse that's sort of like a ministry report. That's sort of like maybe an update you got this week from some missionaries that you support. And they tell you what they have been doing. What have they been up to the last few months, the last year, right? One author calls this verse a representative sample, So chapters 8 and 9 have shown us a lot of stuff Jesus has done. And now Matthew sort of says, and here's everything else he's been doing. Here's the the sample. Here's the summary of all that Jesus has been up to. And you note that the word appears three times. All, every, every. Same word in in Greek, uh, different uses here in English. All, every, every. This is to show us that Jesus is going through the entire region. He's healing all that ails The people he is preaching and proclaiming the gospel to all who have ears to hear. Up to this point, however, it's only been Jesus. Right? Jesus has done everything for himself. It doesn't says this doesn't say. Excuse me. This is what the disciples have done. It says this is simply what Jesus has done. Up to this point, he's doing the teaching. Up to this point, he's doing the preaching. Up to this point, he is doing all of the healing. It's all Jesus going forth and preparing the soil for the harvest. Not only is this a summary verse, this is also a transition verse. Keep your finger here, turn back a couple pages in Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Tell me if this sounds familiar. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. Sounds the same, right? Did Matthew sort of run out of ideas? He had to go back a couple chapters and cut and paste into what he's writing at the end of chapter 9. Well, you know, there is a transition between the two. Matthew 3 and 4 is the narrative of Jesus, what he does. And then we go straight to the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7. That little verse is a transition from narrative to sermon to discourse. Same thing for us. When we come back in three months, we're going to be in teaching and preaching a discourse, a, a lesson on the lips of Jesus. So that verse is used by Matthew twice to tell us there's a transition coming. He's, he's ending the narrative section, and now he's going to go into a teaching section. But even more, because if we go back in Matthew 9, verses 30, verse 35, Uh, We can also recognize that this isn't merely a transition. This isn't simply a ministry report. This is the end of an era, we could say, in the ministry of Jesus. You see, these verses function sort of like bookends, right? Sort of a beginning and end. They're, They're markers. This is what summarizes in this section of the life and ministry of Jesus an era in which Jesus does everything. And we are about to begin a new era in chapter 10 when, skip ahead, what does Jesus do? He sends out the 12 apostles. Teaching, proclaiming, healing. It is now them in his name taking the gospel out. Jesus is ending one era and he's beginning another era. You might say the field in order that he might send out the harvesters. To read our metaphor backwards how can Jesus say in verse 37 that the fields are ready for the harvest it's because in chapters 4 through 9 he has prepared those very fields they are ready because Jesus has sown the seed and prepared them and I think this explains why Jesus is facing so much opposition in these verses I don't know how many of you are into farming, but you can imagine what it's like to be the first person ever to clear a field. You're going to run into a lot of obstacles, right? You're going to find a lot of roots. You're going to find a lot of rocks. You're going to have to treat and prepare the soil just to plant the seed. I think that explains a lot of the demonic resistance that Jesus encounters in his ministry that does not pop up as much in any of the rest of the Bible but is intensely focused in the ministry of Jesus. He's the one breaking and preparing the field, right? He is the plow that is going ahead in that rockiest soil. So there's nothing about anybody else here but Jesus, because Jesus is planting the seeds. Jesus is preparing the fields. Jesus is going before us such that there will be in time a harvest to come. So that first step has nothing to do with you. It's all Jesus. Jesus plants the seeds in verse 35. After the farmer does the planting, he watches the field to see when it is ready for harvest. And that's the same thing we see Jesus do here. We see our our second step in Jesus leading us to join him in the harvest is verse 36. Jesus reviews the fields. First he plants the seeds and then he reviews the fields. Jesus looks out over the fields in verse 36, and what does he see? Well, look at what Matthew records for us. When he saw the crowds, there are crowds of people following Jesus. These are not the first crowds he's seen. Remember, this is why he got in the boat, to get away from the crowds, right? Uh, This is why the paralytic couldn't be brought to him, had to be lowered down through the roof because there's so many people around him. Uh, this is why the woman from last week uh, had to find him and seek him out in the crowd to touch him. There are crowds following Jesus everywhere. And do you know how you and I would respond to have a crowd of people always following us, always begging us, always asking us to help them? We would be annoyed, Right? I never have crowds following me and I still get annoyed with people. (laughs) Jesus have crowds after him constantly. What does he see? How does he respond to the crowds? Matthew tells us he had compassion for them. If anything teaches us the divine nature of Christ. It's this, right? You would not have, I do not have this level of compassion. What is it? What does that word mean? Well, it's, uh, it's sort of a, kind of a gross word. It means a gut reaction. It's a, a visceral emotion, right? The, in the ancient Near East, the seat, as people understood it, the seat of, of someone's emotions was not their heart as we would refer to it today, It was their gut, right? That's kind of where stuff came from, right? It was the the ancient way of referring to what rises up from someone's core, right? It rises up from their core. Compassion is not sort of incidental to Jesus, right? It defines not very much who he is and how he responds to. To the crowds, This is why we find Jesus always going to needy people. Now we know why he's doing it. Why does Jesus seek out the lame and the sick and the oppressed and the blind and the mute, even the dead? Because he has compassion for them. Jesus sees a sinful, a needy, an unclean, according to the Jewish tradition of the day, people. And he is moved for them. He is moved by the sight of people in need. Now, how can we say this about God? Right, we, need, we need to think sort of theologically here for a second. Because we know that Jesus is fully God. And so this shows us he's sort of like us. I mean, you've had that experience when you see someone or something needy and you feel moved towards them, Right? Yesterday we were on the road as a family and there was a dog by itself trotting down the side of the road and there were lots of, oh, voices from my car, right? That poor little doggy. (laughs) right? We were all moved. I didn't say that. Other people in my car did. But we were all, we were moved by compassion, right? For this dog alone by itself uh, on the side of the road. We might even say, however, that that reaction can be manipulated within us, Right? You've been tricked because you're a compassionate person, haven't you? You can remember a time you had compassion on somebody, but boy, you shouldn't have. Come to find out the full story, and you, got, you were tricked, right? You were, you were controlled by an emotion within you. And sometimes that emotion is so strong, it can sort of go against the very thing we want to do. We as, as fallen humans can have emotions that are at war within us. We don't do what we know we're supposed to do because our emotions are controlling us. Guess who doesn't have that? God. There's nothing in God that controls God. Or else he wouldn't be God. There aren't separate parts within Jesus that are at war against themselves. We don't look at Jesus and say, man, he really kind of gave in at that moment. That compassion, man, this really took him over. What what a weakling. No, this is Jesus who is fully man, who is fully God, who is 100% in control, and he, even he, not manipulated, but moved by the sight of the needy crowds. Now, what is it about the crowds that make them such an object for his pity, such an object for his compassion? They were, as Matthew records, they were harassed and helpless. That's quite a definition of this crowd. They are harassed, that means they are bullied they're oppressed right they're beaten down they're helpless which means that they're unable to rescue themselves right they could be harassed and theoretically they could get themselves out of it but they can't they are helpless they are vulnerable and then jesus uses this key image they are like sheep without a shepherd sheep seem to be to us and sheep farmers attest to this they're sort of helpless stupid animals right and so, when we think of sheep without a shepherd, uh, our heart should go out to them, right? What what an image of a sheep that is defenseless and vulnerable and oppressed and threatened by wolves, by false shepherds. We just that picture alone moves us with compassion for the sheep. But Jesus uses it particularly because it's an Old Testament image. Jesus has. Strong words of rebuke for false shepherds in Israel. There are numerous times in the Old Testament, number seventeen, Ezekiel thirty-four, others where Jesus speaks, or sorry, where God speaks words of rebuke against the false shepherds of Israel. And so, by Jesus using this language, He is saying He is looking at a crowd of people who are under false and oppressive shepherds and he has compassion on them now what is going on in israel at the time that would make jesus look at the crowds of people and come to the conclusion that their leadership has failed well it's because they don't see jesus as the messiah who have objected to jesus's claims to be god the leadership The leader's job is to point their followers to the Messiah. And they have not only failed to see the Messiah, they have failed to point him out in the first place. And instead, we read later on in the words of Jesus that they lay heavy burdens on their people. That's so much of the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus rebuking and tearing down the heavy burdens that the Pharisees and the leaders of the day lay upon their people. They give them more laws instead of grace. They give them rules instead of redeemer, a redeemer, right? Jesus sees a people that have no sight of him because their leaders have failed to show them Jesus as the Messiah. And he is moved by this sight. I want to pause here and ask. Does what moves Jesus move you? Compassion motivates the mission of Jesus. His heart goes out to sheep without a shepherd. And the next step, the next action we'll get to in a moment is the beginning of the mission of the church. But before we get there, we need to ask the question, do you see the crowds like Jesus does? Or as One commentator says, Do we feel tenderly concerned for the souls of unbelievers? Jesus is looking at a a desperate and needy and unbelieving people and has such compassion on them that he has moved to mission towards them with the gospel of grace. You know as well as I do. It's sometimes, when we behold a mass of people in our day who do not believe the gospel and who have rejected Christ, compassion is far from our hearts. But Jesus, Jesus is our model. Jesus, the one who had compassion on us. The very reason we're here, the very reason we have repented of our sin and believed, and not are not like the crowd without the shepherd is because of the compassion of our God who could have left us to our own devices but instead came to us, sent his very son to die for us, to draw us back from the pit of destruction and gift us with faith in Christ for everlasting life. We are the objects not of wrath but of mercy. We are the objects of compassion. We, of all people, can see the compassion of Jesus and we can resonate with it. We can say, Lord, give me more of that compassion. In chapter 5, Jesus calls the church to be salt and light. I wonder sometimes if the light of the church has faded because our compassion has run dry. But if compassion fuels our mission then maybe if our mission is sputtering and dimming we need to see if we're running actually running on fumes or have we run out of the compassion that God has had on us we are empty with it not towards one another you see Jesus he plants the fields he reviews the harvest responds with Compassion on them. Then he gets to the next step. The step is for those that are moved by such a sight. The step of action. In verses 37 and 38, Jesus begins the harvest. He begins the harvest. He gives us the opportunity here. Here's the opportunity. The harvest is plentiful. He looks at the field, he looks at the crowds of people, and he sees fruit ready to be reaped and brought in. He looks at the crowds and he says, they are ready. Ready to come in. How does he know that they're ready? That's a question that we ask cooking in my house often. Is it ready yet? (laughs) Sometimes when my wife, who does most of the baking, steps out of the room and asks me to watch what is in the oven and take it out when it's ready, I'll give her that look. How do I know when it's ready? And she kind of, you just know, Sean. No, I don't just know. I don't know when it's ready. How do we know when the fields are ready? Jesus is telling us that the nations are ready for the great harvest of God, and we are blind to see it. Jesus sees a needy and sinful people and he says they are ready to be reaped into the kingdom. It's like he's telling us, you're looking at the fields from over there. Come where I am. Come see the fields as I see them, Jesus says to us. And you'll see those people that once frustrated you, that once annoyed you, that once drove you crazy, are really objects Of your compassion. And they are ready to hear, receive, and believe the gospel of grace. What an opportunity. What what a field that is ready to be reaped. But there's a problem, isn't there? The problem is that there aren't enough laborers. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So few, we could really only say there's one of them so far. It's Jesus. All the disciples have done up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew is follow Jesus. That's it. He's, invite, he's called them. They got out of their fishing boats. They got out of their tax booth. They followed him. That's it. It's just Jesus. The problem is the harvest is plentiful. He needs more laborers. God needs to send out more Workers And so here comes the action. Here comes the payoff. Verse 38, therefore, go into the harvest. That's what you think he should say, right? Isn't this sort of the the pep talk before the big game, right? Isn't this the commanding officer for his troops go into battle? Go. But Jesus is not telling his followers to go out. He's telling us to go down on our knees in prayer. Here is the action. Here is the first action outside of repent and believe that he calls his followers to pray. Pray earnestly. Pray wholeheartedly. Pray truthfully and honestly. Labor in prayer. To who? Don't you love this name? The Lord of the harvest. This tells us he doesn't need us. But he chooses in his infinite wisdom and kindness to call us and lead us to join Him in the harvest. You see, God is the great harvester, right? God is the one that, that brings in the nations by faith in His Son. It's His harvest, He's the Lord of the harvest. And He, through Jesus, calls us to pray that God would do the very thing He so aims to do, which is send out laborers sometimes we get we get uh, tied up in knots about the sovereignty of God well if if it's God's will that the nations would believe and he's going to send out laborers to the nations what does that have to do with me well Jesus says it has a lot to do with you <laughs> Jesus says it has to do with your prayers that somehow in the sovereignty of God he has designed it so that he the sovereign God of the universe asks for you to ask him to execute his very will in saving the nations. He invites lowly and finite and sinful people to join in this great harvest through prayer. One commentator sums it up by saying the church moves forward on its knees. (laughs) The church moves forward on its knees. What are we to pray for? We pray to the Lord of the harvest. We pray for the Lord to send out laborers, right? The the owner of the field sees that the field is ready to be reaped. The harvest is ready to be brought in. And so he would hire workers to go out into the field and collect the harvest. And so we pray that God will send laborers into his own harvest. The word send there actually can be translated thrust. I love that. Or to put my translation on it, shot out of a cannon, right? We pray that God would shoot out of a cannon laborers into the harvest that is ready to be reaped. The hearers are primed to hear and repent and believe the gospel of grace and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us to pray for that. You know, I I like to sit down and outline my sermons series, usually a year or so in advance. Uh, But I confess I didn't quite realize how this text would sit before a three-month break in the Gospel of Matthew. And I feel like, at a minimum, God is telling me, here's how to spend the next three months. (laughs) And I invite you to join me in praying for laborers to go out into the harvest. To pray that God would send out, like out of a cannon, missionaries to the very ends of the earth. How do we pray this prayer? Number one, pray for global missionaries. Pray for God to send out more. You know, we rejoice as a church. A few months ago, one of our own raised all the support she needed, and she went out uh, to the mission field. What a bittersweet moment that we love to see. We have updates from our own members serving overseas to come back uh, and give tell us what life is like on the field. And I confess, sometimes when they share with us, I think, man, I wish you were here. I wish you were doing that here at Covenant Reformed. Uh, I'd, I'd like all of you to stay here and do that work among us, sort of a selfish prayer uh, one pastor said once that uh, God usually sends the, the best out to the mission field. <laughs> well, we should pray that God would send more, right? We pray for God to bless and grow our church. Maybe we should pray that he would shrink it a little bit by sending his own out to the nations. You see, it's God who sends. It's God who burdens our hearts. Right? it is God that gives us an insatiable desire and calling and yearning to take that gospel to the very ends of the earth. God alone can burden the heart to accept no other calling, to take no other job but that to the cross-cultural mission field. That's one way we pray this prayer. The second way we pray this prayer is for local evangelists. We pray that God would send people out there. We pray that God would send people right here. We know that Asheville needs the gospel, does it not? We know that our neighbors need the gospel. We know that though Christ is heralded and proclaimed this very morning through dozens of pulpits in our city, there is still a dearth of the gospel going forth in our town. And we, all of us, are invited to labor in prayer that God would send out. Maybe it's a full time evangelist, maybe it's Christians like you in the workforce that have a mindset change. Over how you talk to your neighbors, how you talk to your coworkers, how you live and work and study and play such that you have a burning desire for the harvest to be brought in. The third way to pray, this prayer is a way that I often pray it is for new pastors. I think most of you know me well enough that I have a heart for training up and raising up pastors. It's one reason I've asked our session to set aside money in the budget for seminary interns. You know, here's a secret. Wilson's not here, so you he can't get offended. Uh, interns aren't really that good at what they do for a while, right? <laughs> I mean, you've all been interns at your different jobs. Wilson's amazing. I love him. Wilson uh, Interns take a while to grow, right? And where, where, what's the better place for a pastoral intern to grow to minister to the body of Christ? In the body of Christ, right? This, this is your joyous opportunity to invest in a man and a marriage and a family that will sow and reap fruit for decades to come, past when many of us are long gone. I pray that God would raise up more of them. I'm thrilled that God brought us into the harvest field and Lord willing, we'll bring in somebody else and they'll stay with us for a while and then they will be ready and they will go out. Right? We could only worry about our own church or we could have a heart for the global work of God. And a little church like ours, through prayer and training, can raise up pastors to go out and preach and herald the gospel of grace. The final way to pray this prayer is for ruling elders. The office of elder in the Bible includes the job description of evangelist. God raises up elders in his church to love and care and shepherd the flock and to be a witness to the watching world around us. Join me over the next three months in praying that God will raise up godly, mature, faithful, ruling elders to love and care for and serve our flock and to strengthen our witness in the world around us. You know, this last week, uh, I spent it in Birmingham at the General Assembly meeting of our uh, denomination. And part of that was spent uh, on a committee that uh, uh, heard and reviewed the work of Mission to the World, which is the mission sending agency of the PCA. And that report had a lot of good news. Uh, The PCA sends out almost 600 full-time missionaries. Short term, that's one to three year missionaries. We have thousands more of short-term missionaries. We have almost a thousand national partners that are not sent out by missions of the world, but are working with our denomination to plant and grow healthy, reformed gospel preaching churches. We heard testimony of doors opening in foreign fields. We heard testimony about, uh, Missionaries ministering to Ukrainian refugees, not only giving them a place to stay, but beginning Bible studies and worship services uh, for these refugees. But it wasn't all good news. Some of the bad news, maybe the hard news, was to learn that the PCA has an aging missionary force. We're not sending enough people into missions to keep up with the amount of people retiring. If that's not a call to prayer, I don't know what is. New missionaries are not joining fast enough, which means outposts of gospel light and proclamation may have to be closed. In the- We pray, God sends. We pray, God sends. He is the real mission. He sent his son to be born in flesh. To come into a fallen world born as a servant, born under the law, condemned to die upon the cross as a common criminal, buried in the grave, raised from the dead, victorious over the grave, savior of sinners, so that we have a savior in whom to trust and believe. But we can't do that. And so God sent not only Jesus, but the Father and the Son together, send the Holy Spirit to come and open our hearts to believe that he goes before the missionaries he sends out. He prepares hearts and minds. He pricks consciences. And finally, he sends sort of the cleanup crew, the laborers, into the harvest. And all they do is preach the good news and watch as God brings people to faith. If you are here this morning trusting in Christ, it's because of the compassionate heart of our Father who has sent someone into your life to reap the gospel that produces faith in your heart. When you were still a sinner, God had mercy on you. God had compassion on you. He sent his son to die for you. He sent his spirit to give you life. And now he calls you to join him in the great harvest through the simple yet powerful means of prayer. Let us never cease to pray for God to send his victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. Let's pray. Lord, we end where we began and we pray that you would send laborers into the harvest field. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would send out missionaries in cross-cultural settings to plant churches that herald and preach the gospel and plant more and more churches so that the needy, poor, unbeliever would come to faith in Christ. We pray, O Lord, you would send local evangelists to Asheville and Buncombe County in western North Carolina from our midst, from our Presbyterian sister churches. Lord, we pray you would raise up pastors. We thank you for the ones you have brought us and pray you would bring more that we might send out with joy and thanksgiving men prepared and trained into the harvest field to join in the harvest. Lord, we pray even for ruling elders. Pray for godly and faithful men to be raised up and serve this high calling in our midst. Lord, lead us as a people to prayer. Sometimes we can think of everything else to do but pray. So we pray to pray. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would lead us into this well-trod path of prayer. We would join the saints of old in beseeching you, the Lord of the harvest, to send Out, to shoot out of a cannon laborers into the harvest field. Lord, you had that same compassion on us. Pity the nations, O our God, and compel the world to come. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.